Letter 46 On a New Book by Lucilius I received the book of yours which you promised me. I opened it hastily with the idea of glancing it over at leisure, for I meant only to taste the volume. But by its own charm the book coaxed me into traversing it more at length. You may understand from this fact how eloquent it was, for it seemed to be written in the smooth style, and yet did not resemble your handiwork or mine, but at first sight might have been ascribed to Titus Livius or to Epicurus. Moreover, I was so impressed and carried along by its charm that I finished it without any postponement. The sunlight called to me, hunger warned, and clouds were lowering, but I absorbed the book from beginning to end. I was not merely pleased. I rejoiced. So full of wit and spirit it was. I should have added, force, had the book contained moments of repose, or had it risen to energy only at intervals. But I found that there was no burst of force, but an even flow, a style that was vigorous and chaste. Nevertheless, I noticed from time to time your sweetness, and here and there that mildness of yours. Your style is lofty and noble. I want you to keep to this manner and this direction. Your subject also contributed something. For this reason, you should choose productive topics, which will lay hold of the mind and arouse it. I shall discuss the book more fully after a second perusal. Meantime, my judgment is somewhat unsettled, just as if I had heard it read aloud and had not read it myself. You must allow me to examine it also. You need not be afraid. You shall hear the truth. Lucky fellow! to offer a man no opportunity to tell you lies at such long range. Unless, perhaps, even now, when excuses for lying are taken away, custom serves as an excuse for our telling each other lies. Farewell. Letter 44 On Philosophy and Pedigrees you are again insisting to me that you are a nobody, and saying that nature in the first place and fortune in the second have treated you too scurvily, and this in spite of the fact that you have it in your power to separate yourself from the crowd and rise to the highest human happiness. If there is any good in philosophy, it is this, that it never looks into pedigrees. All men, if traced back to their original source, spring from the gods. You are a Roman knight, and your persistent work promoted you to this class. Yet surely there are many to whom the fourteen rows are barred. The senate chamber is not open to all. The army, too, is scrupulous in choosing those whom it admits to toil and danger. But a noble mind is free to all men. According to this test, we may all gain distinction. Philosophy neither rejects nor selects anyone. Its light shines for all. Socrates was no aristocrat. Cleonthes worked at a well and served as a hired man watering a garden. Philosophy did not find Plato already a nobleman. It made him one. Why then should you despair of becoming able to rank with men like these? They are all your ancestors. 
if you conduct yourself in a manner worthy of them, and you will do so if you convince yourself at the outset that no man outdoes you in real nobility. We have all had the same number of forefathers. There is no man whose first beginning does not transcend memory. Plato says, Every king springs from a race of slaves, and every slave has had kings among his ancestors. The flight of time, with its vicissitudes, has jumbled all such things together, and fortune has turned them upside down. Then who is well born? He who is by nature well fitted for virtue. That is the one point to be considered. Otherwise, if you hark back to antiquity, everyone traces back to a date before which there is nothing. From the earliest beginnings of the universe to the present time, we have been led forward out of origins that were alternately illustrious and ignoble. A hall full of smoke-begrimed busts does not make the nobleman. No past life has been lived to lend us glory, and that which has existed before us is not ours. The soul alone renders us noble, and it may rise superior to fortune out of any earlier condition, no matter what that condition has been. Suppose, then, that you were not that Roman knight, but a freedman. You might, nevertheless, by your own efforts, come to be the only free man amid a throng of gentlemen. How, you ask? Simply by distinguishing between good and bad things, without patterning your opinion from the populace. You should look not to the source from which these things come, but to the goal towards which they tend. If there is anything that can make life happy, it is good on its own merits, for it cannot degenerate into evil. Where, then, lies the mistake, since all men crave the happy life? It is that they regard the means for producing happiness as happiness itself, and, while seeking happiness, they are really fleeing from it. For although the sum and substance of the happy life is unalloyed freedom from care, and though the secret of such freedom is unshaken confidence, yet men gather together that which causes worry and, while traveling life's treacherous road, not only have burdens to bear, but even draw burdens to themselves. Hence, they recede farther and farther from the achievement of that which they seek, and the more effort they expend, the more they hinder themselves and are set back. This is what happens when you hurry through a maze. The faster you go, the worse you are entangled. Farewell. Letter 50 On Our Blindness and Its Cure I received your letter many months after you had posted it. Accordingly, I thought it useless to ask the carrier what you were busied with. He must have a particularly good memory if he can remember that. But I hope by this time you are living in such a way that I can be sure what it is you are busied with, no matter where you may be. For what else are you busied with, except improving yourself every day, laying aside some error and coming to understand that the faults which you attribute to circumstances are in yourself? We are indeed apt to ascribe certain faults to the place or to the time, 
but those faults will follow us, no matter how we change our place. You know Harpaste, my wife's female clown. She has remained in my house a burden incurred from a legacy. I particularly disapprove of these freaks. Whenever I wish to enjoy the quips of a clown, I am not compelled to hunt far. I can laugh at myself. Now this clown suddenly became blind. The story sounds incredible, but I assure you that it is true. She does not know that she is blind. She keeps asking her attendant to change her quarters. She says that her apartments are too dark. You can see clearly that that which makes us smile in the case of Harpaste happens to all the rest of us. Nobody understands that he is himself greedy, or that he is covetous. Yet the blind ask for a guide, while we wander without one, saying, I am not self-seeking, but one cannot live at Rome in any other way. I am not extravagant, but mere living in the city demands a great outlay. It is not my fault that I have a choleric disposition, or that I have not settled down to any definite scheme of life. It is due to my youth. Why do we deceive ourselves? The evil that afflicts us is not external, it is within us, situated in our very vitals. For that reason we attain soundness with all the more difficulty, because we do not know that we are diseased. Suppose that we have begun the cure. When shall we throw off all these diseases with all their virulence? At present we do not even consult the physician, whose work would be easier if he were called in when the complaint was in its early stages. The tender and the inexperienced minds would follow his advice if he pointed out the right way. No man finds it difficult to return to nature, except the man who has deserted nature. We blush to receive instruction in sound sense, but by heaven, if we think it base to seek a teacher of this art, we should also abandon any hope that so great a good could be instilled into us by mere chance. No, we must work. To tell the truth, even the work is not great, if only, as I said, we begin to mold and reconstruct our souls before they are hardened by sin. But I do not despair even of a hardened sinner. There is nothing that will not surrender to persistent treatment, to concentrated and careful attention. However much the timber may be bent, you can make it straight again. Heat unbends curved beams, and wood that grew naturally in another shape is fashioned artificially according to our needs. How much more easily does the soul permit itself to be shaped, pliable as it is and more yielding than any liquid? For what else is the soul than air in a certain state? And you see that air is more adaptable than any other matter, in proportion as it is rarer than any other. There is nothing, Lucilius, to hinder you from entertaining good hopes about us, just because we are even now in the grip of evil, or because we have long been possessed thereby. There is no man to whom a good mind comes before an evil one. It is the evil mind that gets first hold on all of us. Learning virtue 
means unlearning vice. We should, therefore, proceed to the task of freeing ourselves from faults with all the more courage because, when once committed to us, the good is an everlasting possession. Virtue is not unlearned. For opposites find difficulty in clinging where they do not belong, therefore they can be driven out and hustled away. But qualities that come to a place which is rightfully theirs abide faithfully. Virtue is according to nature. Vice is opposed to it and hostile. But although virtues, when admitted, cannot depart and are easy to guard, yet the first steps and the approach to them are toilsome, because it is characteristic of a weak and diseased mind to fear that which is unfamiliar. The mind must, therefore, be forced to make a beginning. From then on, the medicine is not bitter. For just as soon as it is curing us, it begins to give pleasure. One enjoys other cures only after health is restored, but a draught of philosophy is at the same moment wholesome and pleasant. Farewell. Letter 53 On the Faults of the Spirit You can persuade me into almost anything now, for I was recently persuaded to travel by water. We cast off when the sea was lazily smooth. The sky, to be sure, was heavy with nasty clouds, such as usually break into rain or squalls. Still, I thought that the few miles between Puttioli and your dear Parthenope might be run off in quick time, despite the uncertain and lowering sky. So, in order to get away more quickly, I made straight out to sea for Nessus, with the purpose of cutting across all the inlets. But when we were so far out, that it made little difference to me whether I returned or kept on, the calmer weather, which had enticed me, came to naught. The storm had not yet begun, but the ground swell was on, and the waves kept steadily coming faster. I began to ask the pilot to put me ashore somewhere, he replied that the coast was rough and a bad place to land, and that in a storm he feared a lee shore more than anything else. But I was suffering too grievously to think of the danger, since a sluggish seasickness which brought no relief was racking me, the sort that upsets the liver without clearing it. Therefore I laid down the law to my pilot, forcing him to make for the shore willy-nilly. When we drew near, I did not wait for things to be done in accordance with Virgil's orders until prow faced seaward, or anchor plunged from bow. I remembered my profession as a veteran devotee of cold water, and, clad as I was in my cloak, let myself down into the sea, just as a cold water bather should. What do you think my feelings were, scrambling over the rocks, searching out the path, or making one for myself? I understood that sailors have good reason to fear the land. It is hard to believe what I endured when I could not endure myself. You may be sure that the reason why Ulysses was shipwrecked on every possible occasion was not so much because the sea god was angry with him from his birth. He was simply subject to seasickness. And in the future I also, if I must go anywhere by sea, 
shall only reach my destination in the twentieth year. When I finally calmed my stomach, for you know that one does not escape seasickness by escaping from the sea, and refreshed my body with a rub-down, I began to reflect how completely we forget or ignore our failings, even those that affect the body which are continually reminding us of their existence, not to mention those which are more serious in proportion as they are more hidden. A slight ague deceives us, but when it has increased and a genuine fever has begun to burn, it forces even a hardy man, who can endure much suffering, to admit that he is ill. There is a pain in the foot, and a tingling sensation in the joints, but we still hide the complaint, and announce that we have sprained a joint, or else are tired from over-exercise. Then the ailment, uncertain at first, must be given a name, and when it begins to swell the ankles also, and has made both our feet right feet, we are bound to confess that we have the gout. The opposite holds true of diseases of the soul. The worse one is, the less one perceives it. You need not be surprised, my beloved Lucilius, for he whose sleep is light pursues visions during slumber, and sometimes, though asleep, is conscious that he is asleep. But sound slumber annihilates our very dreams, and sinks the spirit down so deep that it has no perception of self. Why will no man confess his faults? Because he is still in their grasp. Only he who is awake can recount his dream, and similarly a confession of sin is a proof of sound mind. Let us therefore rouse ourselves, that we may be able to correct our mistakes. Philosophy, however, is the only power that can stir us, the only power that can shake off our deep slumber. Devote yourself wholly to philosophy. You are worthy of her. She is worthy of you. Greet one another with a loving embrace. Say farewell to all other interests with courage and frankness. Do not study philosophy merely during your spare time. If you were ill, you would stop caring for your personal concerns and forget your business duties. You would not think highly enough of any client to take active charge of his case during a slight abatement of your sufferings. You would try your hardest to be rid of the illness as soon as possible. What then? Shall you not do the same thing now? Throw aside all hindrances and give up your time to getting a sound mind, for no man can attain it if he is engrossed in other matters. Philosophy wields her own authority. She appoints her own time, and does not allow it to be appointed for her. She is not a thing to be followed at odd times, but a subject for daily practice. She is mistress, and she commands our attendance. Alexander, when a certain state promised him a part of its territory and half its entire property, replied, I invaded Asia with the intention, not of accepting what you might give, but of allowing you to keep what I might leave. Philosophy, likewise, keeps saying to all occupations, I do not intend to accept the time which you have left over, but 
I shall allow you to keep what I myself shall leave. Turn to her, therefore, with all your soul. Sit at her feet. Cherish her. A great distance will then begin to separate you from other men. You will be far ahead of all mortals, and even the gods will not be far ahead of you. Do you ask what will be the difference between yourself and the gods? They will live longer. But, by my faith, it is the sign of a great artist to have confined a full likeness to the limits of a miniature. The wise man's life spreads out to him over as large a surface as does all eternity to a god. There is one point in which the sage has an advantage over the god, for a god is freed from terrors by the bounty of nature, the wise man by his own bounty. What a wonderful privilege to have the weaknesses of a man and the serenity of a god. The power of philosophy to blunt the blows of chance is beyond belief. No missile can settle in her body. She is well protected and impenetrable. She spoils the force of some missiles and wards them off with the loose folds of her gown, as if they had no power to harm. Others she dashes aside and hurls them back with such force that they recoil upon the sender. Farewell. Letter 49 On the Shortness of Life A man is indeed lazy and careless, my dear Lucilius, if he is reminded of a friend only by seeing some landscape which stirs the memory. And yet there are times when the old familiar haunts stir up a sense of loss that has been stored away in the soul, not bringing back dead memories, but rousing them from their dormant state, just as the sight of a lost friend's favorite slave, or his cloak, or his house, renews the mourner's grief, even though it has been softened by time. Now, lo and behold, Campania, and especially Naples and your beloved Pompeii, struck me when I viewed them with a wonderfully fresh sense of longing for you. You stand in full view before my eyes. I am on the point of parting from you. I see you choking down your tears and resisting without success the emotions that well up at the very moment when you try to check them. I seem to have lost you, but a moment ago. For what is not but a moment ago, when one begins to use the memory? It was but a moment ago that I sat, as a lad, in the school of the philosopher Sotion, but a moment ago that I began to plead in the courts, but a moment ago that I lost the desire to plead, but a moment ago that I lost the ability. Infinitely swift is the flight of time, as those see more clearly who are looking backwards. For when we are intent on the present, we do not notice it. So gentle is the passage of time's headlong flight. Do you ask the reason for this? All past time is in the same place. It all presents the same aspect to us. It lies together. Everything slips into the same abyss. Besides, an event which in its entirety is of brief compass cannot contain long intervals. The time which we spend in living is but a point 
nay, even less than a point. But this point of time, infinitesimal as it is, nature has mocked by making it seem outwardly of longer duration. She has taken one portion thereof and made it infancy, another childhood, another youth, another the gradual slope, so to speak, from youth to old age, and old age itself is still another. How many steps, for how short a climb! It was but a moment ago that I saw you off on your journey, and yet this moment ago makes up a goodly share of our existence, which is so brief we should reflect that it will soon come to an end altogether. In other years time did not seem to me to go so swiftly. Now it seems fast beyond belief, perhaps because I feel that the finish line is moving closer to me, or it may be that I have begun to take heed and reckon up my losses. For this reason I am all the more angry that some men claim the major portion of this time for superfluous things, time which, no matter how carefully it is guarded, cannot suffice even for necessary things. Cicero declared that if the number of his days were doubled, he should not have the time to read the lyric poets. And you may rate the dialecticians in the same class, but they are foolish in a more melancholy way. The lyric poets are avowedly frivolous, but the dialecticians believe that they are themselves engaged upon serious business. I do not deny that one must cast a glance at dialectic, but it ought to be a mere glance, a sort of greeting from the threshold, merely that one may not be deceived or judge these pursuits to contain any hidden matters of great worth. Why do you torment yourself and lose weight over some problem which it is more clever to have scorned than to solve? When a soldier is undisturbed and travelling at his ease, he can hunt for trifles along his way. But when the enemy is closing in on the rear, and a command is given to quicken the pace, necessity makes him throw away everything which he picked up in moments of peace and leisure. I have no time to investigate disputed inflections of words, or to try my cunning upon them. Behold the gathering clans, the fast shut gates, and weapons wetted, ready for the war. I need a stout heart to hear without flinching this din of battle which sounds round about. And all would rightly think me mad if, when grey beards and women were heaping up rocks for the fortifications, when the armor-clad youths inside the gates were awaiting, or even demanding, the order for a sally, when the spears of the foemen were quivering in our gates, and the very ground was rocking with mines and subterranean passages, I say they would rightly think me mad if I were to sit idle, putting such pretty posers as this. What you have not lost, you have. But you have not lost any horns, therefore you have horns. Or other tricks constructed after the model of this piece of sheer silliness. And yet I may well seem in your eyes no less mad if I spend my energies on that sort of thing, for even now I am in a state of siege. And yet in the former case it would be merely a peril from the outside that threatened me, and a wall that sundered me from the foe. As it is now, death-dealing perils are in my very presence. I have no time for such nonsense. A mighty undertaking is on my hands. What am I to do? Death is on my trail, and life is fleeting away. 
teach me something with which to face these troubles. Bring it to pass that I shall cease trying to escape from death, and that life may cease to escape from me. Give me courage to meet hardships. Make me calm in the face of the unavoidable. Relax the straitened limits of the time which is allotted me. Show me that the good in life does not depend upon life's length, but upon the use we make of it. Also, that it is possible, or rather usual, for a man who has lived long to have lived too little. Say to me when I lie down to sleep, You may not wake again. And when I return, You may never go forth again. You are mistaken if you think that only on an ocean voyage there is a very slight space between life and death. No, the distance between is just as narrow everywhere. It is not everywhere that death shows himself so near at hand, yet everywhere he is as near at hand. Rid me of these shadowy terrors, then you will more easily deliver to me the instruction for which I have prepared myself. At our birth, nature made us teachable and gave us reason, not perfect, but capable of being perfected. Discuss for me justice, duty, thrift, and that twofold purity, both the purity which abstains from another's person and that which takes care of one's own self. If you will only refuse to lead me along bypaths, I shall more easily reach the goal at which I am aiming. For, as the tragic poet says, The language of truth is simple. We should not, therefore, make that language intricate, since there is nothing less fitting for a soul of great endeavor than such crafty cleverness. Farewell. Letter 48 On Quibbling as Unworthy of the Philosopher In answer to the letter which you wrote me while traveling, a letter as long as the journey itself, I shall reply later. I ought to go into retirement and consider what sort of advice I should give you. For you yourself, who consult me, also reflected for a long time whether to do so. How much more, then, should I myself reflect, since more deliberation is necessary in settling than in propounding a problem? And this is particularly true when one thing is advantageous to you and another to me. Am I speaking again in the guise of an Epicurean? But the fact is, the same thing is advantageous to me which is advantageous to you. For I am not your friend unless whatever is at issue concerning you is my concern also. Friendship produces between us a partnership in all our interests. There is no such thing as good or bad fortune for the individual. We live in common. And no one can live happily who has regard to himself alone and transforms everything into a question of his own utility. You must live for your neighbor if you would live for yourself. This fellowship, maintained with scrupulous care, which makes us mingle as men with our fellow men, and holds that the human race have certain rights in common, is also of great help in cherishing the more intimate fellowship which is based on friendship, concerning which I began to speak above. For he that has much in common with a fellow man will have all things in common with a friend. And on this point, my excellent Lucilius, 
I should like to have those subtle dialecticians of yours advise me how I ought to help a friend, or how a fellow man, rather than tell me in how many ways the word friend is used, and how many meanings the word man possesses. Lo, wisdom and folly are taking opposite sides. Which shall I join? Which party would you have me follow? On that side, man is the equivalent of friend. On the other side, friend is not the equivalent of man. The one wants a friend for his own advantage. The other wants to make himself an advantage to his friend. What you have to offer me is nothing but distortion of words and splitting of syllables. It is clear that unless I can devise some very tricky premises and by false deductions tack on to them a fallacy which springs from the truth, I shall not be able to distinguish between what is desirable and what is to be avoided. I am ashamed. Old men as we are, dealing with a problem so serious, we make play of it. Mouse is a syllable. Now a mouse eats its cheese, therefore a syllable eats cheese. Suppose now that I cannot solve this problem. See what peril hangs over my head as a result of such ignorance. What a scrape I shall be in. Without doubt I must beware, or some day I shall be catching syllables in a mouse trap, or, if I grow careless, a book may devour my cheese. Unless, perhaps, the following syllogism is shrewder still. Mouse is a syllable. Now a syllable does not eat cheese. Therefore, a mouse does not eat cheese. What childish nonsense! Do we knit our brows over this sort of problem? Do we let our beards grow long for this reason? Is this the matter which we teach with sour and pale faces? Would you really know what philosophy offers to humanity? Philosophy offers counsel. Death calls away one man, and poverty chafes another. A third is worried either by his neighbor's wealth or by his own. So-and-so is afraid of bad luck. Another desires to get away from his own good fortune. Some are ill-treated by men, others by the gods. Why, then, do you frame for me such games as these? It is no occasion for jest. You are retained as counsel for unhappy mankind. You have promised to help those in peril by sea, those in captivity, the sick and the needy, and those whose heads are under the poised axe. Whither are you straying? What are you doing? This friend, in whose company you are jesting, is in fear. Help him, and take the noose from about his neck. Men are stretching out imploring hands to you on all sides. Lives ruined and in danger of ruin are begging for some assistance. Men's hopes, men's resources depend upon you. They ask that you deliver them from all their restlessness, that you reveal to them, scattered and wandering as they are, the clear light of truth. Tell them what nature has made necessary and what superfluous. Tell them how simple are the laws that she has laid down, how pleasant and unimpeded life is for those who follow these laws, but how bitter and perplexed it is for those who have put their trust in opinion rather than in nature. I should deem your games of logic to be of some avail in relieving men's burdens. 
if you could first show me what part of these burdens they will relieve. What among these games of yours banishes lust? Or controls it? Would that I could say that they were merely of no profit. They are positively harmful. I can make it perfectly clear to you whenever you wish that a noble spirit, when involved in such subtleties, is impaired and weakened. I am ashamed to say what weapons they supply to men who are destined to go to war with fortune and how poorly they equip them. Is this the path to the greatest good? Is philosophy to proceed by such claptrap and by quibbles which would be a disgrace and a reproach even for expounders of the law? For what else is it that you men are doing when you deliberately ensnare the person to whom you are putting questions than making it appear that the man has lost his case on a technical error? But just as the judge can reinstate those who have lost a suit in this way, so philosophy has reinstated these victims of quibbling to their former condition. Why do you men abandon your mighty promises and, after having assured me in high-sounding language that you will permit the glitter of gold to dazzle my eyesight no more than the gleam of the sword, and that I shall, with mighty steadfastness, spurn both that which all men crave and that which all men fear, why do you descend to the ABCs of scholastic pedants? What is your answer? Is this the path to heaven? For that is exactly what philosophy promises to me, that I shall be made equal to God. For this I have been summoned, for this purpose have I come. Philosophy, keep your promise. Therefore, my dear Lucilius, withdraw yourself as far as possible from these exceptions and objections of so-called philosophers. Frankness and simplicity beseem true goodness. Even if there were many years left to you, you would have had to spend them frugally in order to have enough for the necessary things. But, as it is, when your time is so scant, what madness it is to learn superfluous things. Farewell. Letter 45 On Sophistical Argumentation You complain that in your part of the world there is a scant supply of books. But it is quality rather than quantity that matters. A limited list of reading benefits. A varied assortment serves only for delight. He who would arrive at the appointed end must follow a single road and not wander through many ways. What you suggest is not traveling, it is mere tramping. But, you say, I should rather have you give me advice than books. Still, I am ready to send you all the books I have to ransack the whole storehouse. If it were possible, I should join you there myself, and were it not for the hope that you will soon complete your term of office, I should have imposed upon myself this old man's journey. No Scylla or Charybdis or their storied straits could have frightened me away. I should not only have crossed over, but should have been willing to swim over those waters, provided that I could greet you and judge in your presence how much you had grown in spirit. Your desire, however, 
that I should dispatch to you my own writings, does not make me think myself learned, any more than a request for my picture would flatter my beauty. I know that it is due to your charity rather than to your judgment, and even if it is the result of judgment, it was charity that forced the judgment upon you. But whatever the quality of my works may be, read them as if I were still seeking and were not aware of the truth, and were seeking it obstinately too. For I have sold myself to no man. I bear the name of no master. I give much credit to the judgment of great men, but I claim something also for my own. For these men too have left to us not positive discoveries, but problems whose solution is still to be sought. They might perhaps have discovered the essentials had they not sought the superfluous also. They lost much time in quibbling about words and in sophistical argumentation. All that sort of thing exercises the wit to no purpose. We tie knots and bind up words in double meanings, and then try to untie them. Have we leisure enough for this? Do we already know how to live or die? We should rather proceed with our whole souls towards the point where it is our duty to take heed lest things, as well as words, deceive us. Why, pray, do you discriminate between similar words when nobody is ever deceived by them except during the discussion? It is things that lead us astray. It is between things that you must discriminate. We embrace evil instead of good. We pray for something opposite to that which we have prayed for in the past. Our prayers clash with our prayers, our plans with our plans. How closely flattery resembles friendship. It not only apes friendship, but outdoes it, passing it in the race. With wide open and indulgent ears it is welcomed and sinks to the depths of the heart, and it is pleasing precisely wherein it does harm. Show me how I may be able to see through this resemblance. An enemy comes to me full of compliments in the guise of a friend. Vices creep into our hearts under the name of virtues. Rashness lurks beneath the appellation of bravery. Moderation is called sluggishness and the coward is regarded as prudent. There is great danger if we go astray in these matters, so stamp them with special labels. Then, too, the man who is asked whether he has horns on his head is not such a fool as to feel for them on his forehead, nor again so silly or dense that you can persuade him by means of argumentation, no matter how subtle, that he does not know the facts. Such Quibbles are just as harmlessly deceptive as the juggler's cup and dice, in which it is the very trickery that pleases me. But show me how the trick is done, and I have lost my interest therein. And I hold the same opinion about these tricky word plays, for by what other name can one call such sophistries? Not to know them does no harm, and mastering them does no good. At any rate, if you wish to sift doubtful meanings of this kind, teach us that the happy man is not he whom the crowd deems happy, namely, he into whose coffers mighty sums have flowed, but he whose possessions are all in his soul, who is upright and exalted, who spurns inconstancy, 
who sees no man with whom he wishes to change places, who rates men only at their value as men, who takes nature for his teacher, conforming to her laws and living as she commands, whom no violence can deprive of his possessions, who turns evil into good, is unerring in judgment, unshaken, unafraid, who may be moved by force but never moved to distraction, whom fortune, when she hurls at him with all her might the deadliest missile in her armory, may graze, though rarely, but never wound. For fortune's other missiles, with which she vanquishes mankind in general, rebound from such a one, like hail which rattles on the roof, with no harm to the dweller therein, and then melts away. Why do you bore me with that which you yourself call the liar fallacy, about which so many books have been written? Come now, suppose that my whole life is a lie. Prove that to be wrong, and, if you are sharp enough, bring that back to the truth. At present, it holds things to be essential of which the greater part is superfluous and even that which is not superfluous is of no significance in respect to its power of making one fortunate and blessed. For, if a thing be necessary, it does not follow that it is a good. Else we degrade the meaning of good if we apply that name to bread and barley porridge and other commodities without which we cannot live. The good must in every case be necessary but that which is necessary is not in every case a good, since certain very paltry things are indeed necessary. No one is to such an extent ignorant of the noble meaning of the word good as to debase it to the level of these humdrum utilities. What then? Shall you not rather transfer your efforts to making it clear to all men that the search for the superfluous means a great outlay of time, and that many have gone through life merely accumulating the instruments of life? Consider individuals, survey men in general. There is none whose life does not look forward to the morrow. What harm is there in this, you ask? Infinite harm, for such persons do not live, but are preparing to live. They postpone everything. Even if we paid strict attention, life would soon get ahead of us. But as we are now, life finds us lingering and passes us by as if it belonged to another, and though it ends on the final day, it perishes every day. But I must not exceed the bounds of a letter, which ought not to fill the reader's left hand. So I shall postpone to another day our case against the hair-splitters, those over-subtle fellows who make argumentation supreme instead of subordinate. Farewell. Letter 52 On Choosing Our Teachers What is this force, Lucilius, that drags us in one direction when we are aiming in another, urging us on to the exact place from which we long to withdraw? What is it that wrestles with our spirit? and does not allow us to desire anything once for all. We veer from plan to plan. None of our wishes is free, none is unqualified, none is lasting. But it is the fool, you say, who is inconsistent, 
Nothing suits him for long. But how or when can we tear ourselves away from this folly? No man by himself has sufficient strength to rise above it. He needs a helping hand, and someone to extricate him. Epicurus remarks that certain men have worked their way to the truth without anyone's assistance, carving out their own passage. And he gives special praise to these, for their impulse has come from within, and they have forged to the front by themselves. Again, he says, there are others who need outside help, who will not proceed unless someone leads the way, but who will follow faithfully. Of these, he says, Metrodorus was one. This type of man is also excellent, but belongs to the second grade. We ourselves are not of that first class either. We shall be well treated if we are admitted into the second. Nor need you despise a man who can gain salvation only with the assistance of another. The will to be saved means a great deal too. You will find still another class of man, and a class not to be despised, who can be forced and driven into righteousness, who do not need a guide as much as they require someone to encourage and, as it were, to force them along. This is the third variety. If you ask me for a man of this pattern also, Epicurus tells us that Hermarchus was such, and of the two last-named classes, he is more ready to congratulate the one, but he feels more respect for the other, for although both reached the same goal, it is a greater credit to have brought about the same result with the more difficult material upon which to work. Suppose that two buildings have been erected, unlike as to their foundations, but equal in height and in grandeur. One is built on faultless ground, and the process of erection goes right ahead. In the other case, the foundations have exhausted the building materials, for they have been sunk into soft and shifting ground, and much labor has been wasted in reaching the solid rock. As one looks at both of them, one sees clearly what progress the former has made, but the larger and more difficult part of the latter is hidden. So with men's dispositions. Some are pliable and easy to manage, but others have to be laboriously wrought out by hand, so to speak, and are wholly employed in the making of their own foundations. I should accordingly deem more fortunate the man who has never had any trouble with himself, but the other I feel has deserved better of himself, who has won a victory over the meanness of his own nature, and has not gently led himself, but has wrestled his way to wisdom. You may be sure that this refractory nature, which demands much toil, has been implanted in us. There are obstacles in our path, so let us fight, and call to our assistance some helpers. Whom, you say? Shall I call upon? Shall it be this man or that? There is another choice also open to you. You may go to the ancients, for they have the time to help you. We can get assistance not only from the living, but from those of the past. Let us choose, however, from among the living, not men who pour forth their words with the greatest glibness, turning out commonplaces and holding as it were, their own little private exhibitions. Not these, I say, but men who teach us by their lives, men who tell us what we ought to do, and then prove it by practice, who show us what we should avoid, 
and then are never caught doing that which they have ordered us to avoid. Choose as a guide one whom you will admire more when you see him act than when you hear him speak. Of course, I would not prevent you from listening also to those philosophers who are wont to hold public meetings and discussions, provided they appear before the people for the express purpose of improving themselves and others, and do not practice their profession for the sake of self-seeking. For what is baser than philosophy courting applause? Does the sick man praise the surgeon while he is operating? In silence and with reverent awe, submit to the cure. Even though you cry applause, I shall listen to your cries as if you were groaning when your sores were touched. Do you wish to bear witness that you are attentive, that you are stirred by the grandeur of the subject? You may do this at the proper time. I shall, of course, allow you to pass judgment and cast a vote as to the better course. Pythagoras made his pupils keep silence for five years. Do you think that they had the right on that account to break out immediately into applause? How mad is he who leaves the lecture room in a happy frame of mind simply because of applause from the ignorant? Why do you take pleasure in being praised by men whom you yourself cannot praise? Fabianus used to give popular talks, but his audience listened with self-control. Occasionally a loud shout of praise would burst forth, but it was prompted by the greatness of his subject, and not by the sound of oratory that slipped forth pleasantly and softly. There should be a difference between the applause of the theatre and the applause of the school, and there is a certain decency even in bestowing praise. If you mark them carefully, all acts are always significant, and you can gauge character by even the most trifling signs. The lecherous man is revealed by his gait, by a movement of the hand, sometimes by a single answer, by his touching his head with a finger, by the shifting of his eye. The scamp is shown up by his laugh, the madman by his face and general appearance. These qualities become known by certain marks, but you can tell the character of every man when you see how he gives and receives praise. The philosopher's audience, from this corner and that, stretch forth admiring hands, and sometimes the adoring crowd almost hang over the lecturer's head. But if you really understand, that is not praise. It is merely applause. These outcries should be left for the arts which aim to please the crowd. Let philosophy be worshipped in silence. Young men, indeed, must sometimes have free play to follow their impulses, but it should only be at times when they act from impulse and when they cannot force themselves to be silent. Such praise as that gives a certain kind of encouragement to the hearers themselves and acts as a spur to the youthful mind. But let them be roused to the matter and not to the style. Otherwise, eloquence does them harm, making them enamored of itself and not of the subject. I shall postpone this topic for the present. It demands a long and special investigation to show how the public should be addressed 
what indulgences should be allowed to a speaker on a public occasion, and what should be allowed to the crowd itself in the presence of the speaker. There can be no doubt that philosophy has suffered a loss now that she has exposed her charms for sale. But she can still be viewed in her sanctuary if her exhibitor is a priest and not a peddler. Farewell. Letter 51 On Baiae and Morals Every man does the best he can, my dear Lucilius. You over there have Etna, that lofty and most celebrated mountain of Sicily. Although I cannot make out why Masala, or was it Valgius, for I have been reading in both, has called it unique inasmuch as many regions belch forth fire, not merely the lofty ones where the phenomenon is more frequent, presumably because fire rises to the greatest possible height, but low-lying places also. As for myself, I do the best I can. I have had to be satisfied with Baiae, and I left it the day after I reached it, for Baiae is a place to be avoided, because, though it has certain natural advantages, luxury has claimed it for her own exclusive resort. What, then, you say? Should any place be singled out as an object of aversion? Not at all. But just as, to the wise and upright man, one style of clothing is more suitable than another, without his having an aversion for any particular color, but because he thinks that some colors do not befit one who has adopted the simple life, so there are places also which the wise man, or he who is on the way toward wisdom, will avoid as foreign to good morals. Therefore, if he is contemplating withdrawal from the world, he will not select Canopus, although Canopus does not keep any man from living simply, nor Baiae either, for both places have begun to be resorts of vice. At Canopus, luxury pampers itself to the utmost degree. At Baiae, it is even more lax, as if the place itself demanded a certain amount of license. We ought to select abodes which are wholesome not only for the body, but also for the character. Just as I do not care to live in a place of torture, neither do I care to live in a café. To witness persons wandering drunk along the beach, the riotous reveling of sailing parties, the lakes adin with choral song, and all the other ways in which luxury, when it is, so to speak, released from the restraints of law, not merely sins but blazons its sins abroad, why must I witness all this? We ought to see to it that we flee to the greatest possible distance from provocations to vice. We should toughen our minds and remove them far from the allurements of pleasure. A single winter relaxed Hannibal's fiber. His pampering in Campania took the vigor out of that hero who had triumphed over alpine snows. He conquered with his weapons, but was conquered by his vices. We, too, have a war to wage, a type of warfare in which there is allowed no rest or furlough. To be conquered in the first place are pleasures which, as you see, have carried off even the sternest characters. If a man has once understood 
how great is the task which he has entered upon, he will see that there must be no dainty or effeminate conduct. What have I to do with those hot baths or with the sweating room, where they shut in the dry steam which is to drain your strength? Perspiration should flow only after toil. Suppose we do what Hannibal did. Check the course of events, give up the war, and give over our bodies to be coddled. Everyone would rightly blame us for our untimely sloth, a thing fraught with peril even for the victor, to say nothing of one who is only on the way to victory. And we have even less right to do this than those followers of the Carthaginian flag, for our danger is greater than theirs if we slacken, and our toil is greater than theirs even if we press ahead. Fortune is fighting against me, and I shall not carry out her commands. I refuse to submit to the yoke, nay, rather, I shake off the yoke that is upon me, an act which demands even greater courage. The soul is not to be pampered. Surrendering to pleasure means also surrendering to pain, surrendering to toil, surrendering to poverty. Both ambition and anger will wish to have the same rights over me as pleasure, and I shall be torn asunder, or rather pulled to pieces amid all these conflicting passions. I have set freedom before my eyes, and I am striving for that reward. And what is freedom, you ask? It means not being a slave to any circumstance, to any constraint, to any chance. It means compelling fortune to enter the lists on equal terms. And on the day when I know that I have the upper hand, her power will be not. When I have death in my own control, shall I take orders from her? Therefore, a man occupied with such reflections should choose an austere and pure dwelling place. The spirit is weakened by surroundings that are too pleasant, and without a doubt one's place of residence can contribute towards impairing its vigor. Animals whose hoofs are hardened on rough ground can travel any road, but when they are fattened on soft marshy meadows, their hoofs are soon worn out. The bravest soldier comes from rock-ribbed regions, but the town-bred and the home-bred are sluggish in action. The hand, which turns from the plough to the sword, never objects to toil, but your sleek and well-dressed dandy quails at the first cloud of dust. Being trained in a rugged country strengthens the character and fits it for great undertakings. It was more honorable in Scipio to spend his exile at Liternum than at Baiae. His downfall did not need a setting so effeminate. Those also into whose hands the rising fortunes of Rome first transferred the wealth of the state, Gaius Marius, Gnaeus Pompey, and Caesar, did indeed build villas near Baiae, but they set them on the very tops of the mountains. This seemed more soldier-like, to look down from a lofty height upon lands spread far and wide below. Note the situation 
position and type of building which they chose. You will see that they were not country places. They were camps. Do you suppose that Cato would have ever dwelt in a pleasure palace, that he might count the lewd women as they sailed past, the many kinds of barges painted in all sorts of colors, the roses which were wafted about the lake, or that he might listen to the nocturnal brawls of serenaders? Would he not have preferred to remain in the shelter of a trench thrown up by his own hands to serve for a single night? Would not anyone who was a man have his slumbers broken by a war trumpet rather than by a chorus of serenaders? But I have been haranguing against Bai long enough, although I never could harangue often enough against vice. Vice, Lucilius, is what I wish you to proceed against without limit and without end, for it has neither limit nor end. If any vice rend your heart, cast it away from you, and if you cannot be rid of it in any other way, pluck out your heart also. Above all, drive pleasures from your sight, hate them beyond all other things, for they are like the bandits, whom the Egyptians call lovers, who embrace us only to garrot us. Farewell. Letter 47 On Master and Slave I am glad to learn, through those who come from you, that you live on friendly terms with your slaves. This befits a sensible and well-educated man like yourself. They are slaves, people declare. Nay, rather they are men. Slaves! No, comrades. Slaves! No, they are unpretentious friends. Slaves! No, they are our fellow slaves, if one reflects that fortune has equal rights over slaves and free men alike. That is why I smile at those who think it degrading for a man to dine with his slave. But why should they think it degrading? It is only because purse-proud etiquette surrounds a householder at his dinner with a mob of standing slaves. The master eats more than he can hold, and with monstrous greed loads his belly until it is stretched, and at length ceases to do the work of a belly so that he is at greater pains to discharge all the food than he was to stuff it down. All this time the poor slaves may not move their lips even to speak. The slightest murmur is repressed by the rod. Even a chance sound, a cough, a sneeze, or a hiccup, is visited with the lash. There is a grievous penalty for the slightest breach of silence. All night long they must stand about, hungry and dumb. The result of it all is that these slaves, who may not talk in their master's presence, talk about their master. But the slaves of former days, who were permitted to converse not only in their master's presence, but actually with him, whose mouths were not stitched up tight, were ready to bare their necks for their master, to bring upon their own heads any danger that threatened him. They spoke at the feast, but kept silence during torture. Finally, 
the saying, in allusion to this same high-handed treatment, becomes current. As many enemies as you have slaves. They are not enemies when we acquire them. We make them enemies. I shall pass over other cruel and inhuman conduct towards them, for we maltreat them, not as if they were men, but as if they were beasts of burden. When we recline at a banquet, one slave mops up the disgorged food, another crouches beneath the table and gathers up the leftovers of the tipsy guests. Another carves the priceless game birds. With unerring strokes and skilled hand, he cuts choice morsels along the breast or the rump. Hapless fellow, to live only for the purpose of cutting fat capons correctly, unless, indeed, the other man is still more unhappy than he, who teaches this art for pleasure's sake, rather than he who learns it because he must. Another, who serves the wine, must dress like a woman, and wrestle with his advancing years. He cannot get away from his boyhood. He is dragged back to it, and though he has already acquired a soldier's figure, he is kept beardless by having his hair smoothed away or plucked out by the roots, and he must remain awake throughout the night, dividing his time between his master's drunkenness and his lust. In the chamber he must be a man, at the feast a boy. Another, whose duty it is to put evaluation on the guests, must stick to his task, poor fellow, and watch to see whose flattery and whose immodesty, whether of appetite or of language, is to get them an invitation for tomorrow. Think also of the poor purveyors of food, who note their master's tastes with delicate skill, who know what special flavors will sharpen their appetite, what will please their eyes, what new combinations will rouse their cloyed stomachs, what food will excite their loathing through sheer satiety, and what will stir them to hunger on that particular day. With slaves like these, the master cannot bear to dine. He would think it beneath his dignity to associate with his slave at the same table, heaven forfend. But how many masters is he creating in these very men? I have seen standing in the line before the door of Callistus, the former master of Callistus. I have seen the master himself shut out while others are welcomed. The master, who once fastened the for-sale ticket on Callistus and put him in the market along with the good-for-nothing slaves. But he has been paid off by that slave who was shuffled into the first lot of those on whom the crier practices his lungs. The slave, too, in his turn, has cut his name from the list, and in his turn has adjudged him unfit to enter his house. The master sold Callistus, but how much has Callistus made his master pay for? Kindly remember that he whom you call your slave, sprang from the same stock, is smiled upon by the same skies, and on equal terms with yourself breathes, lives, and dies. It is just as possible for you to see in him a free-born man as for him to see in you a slave. As a result of the massacres in Marius's day, many a man of distinguished birth who was taking the first steps towards senatorial rank by service in the army, was humbled by fortune, one becoming a shepherd, another a caretaker of a country cottage. Despise, then, if you dare, those to whose estate you may at any time descend, even when you are despising them.
I do not wish to involve myself in too large a question, and to discuss the treatment of slaves, towards whom we Romans are excessively haughty, cruel, and insulting. But this is the kernel of my advice. Treat your inferiors as you would be treated by your betters. And, as often as you reflect how much power you have over a slave, remember that your master has just as much power over you. But I have no master, you say. You are still young. Perhaps you will have one. Do you not know at what age Hecuba entered captivity, or Croesus, or the mother of Darius, or Plato, or Diogenes? Associate with your slave on kindly, even on affable terms. Let him talk with you, plan with you, live with you. I know that at this point all the exquisites will cry out against me in a body. They will say, There is nothing more debasing, more disgraceful than this. But these are the very persons whom I sometimes surprise kissing the hands of other men's slaves. Do you not see even this? How our ancestors removed from masters everything invidious, and from slaves everything insulting? They called the master father of the household, and the slaves members of the household, a custom which still holds in the mime. They established a holiday on which masters and slaves should eat together, not as the only day for this custom, but as obligatory on that day in any case. They allowed the slaves to attain honors in the household and to pronounce judgment. They held that a household was a miniature commonwealth. Do you mean to say, comes the retort, that I must seat all my slaves at my own table? No, not any more than that you should invite all free men to it. You are mistaken if you think that I would bar from my table certain slaves whose duties are more humble, as, for example, yonder muleteer, or yonder herdsman. I propose to value them according to their character, and not according to their duties. Each man acquires his character for himself, but accident assigns his duties. Invite some to your table because they deserve the honor, and others that they may come to deserve it. For if there is any slavish quality in them as the result of their low associations, it will be shaken off by intercourse with men of gentler breeding. You need not, my dear Lucilius, hunt for friends only in the Forum or in the Senate House. If you are careful and attentive, you will find them at home also. Good material often stands idle for want of an artist. Make the experiment, and you will find it so. As he is a fool who, when purchasing a horse, does not consider the animal's points but merely his saddle and bridle, so he is doubly a fool who values a man from his clothes or from his rank, which indeed is only a robe that clothes us. He is a slave. His soul, however, may be that of a freeman. He is a slave. But shall that stand in his way? Show me a man who is not a slave. One is a slave to lust, another to greed, another to ambition, and all men are slaves to fear. I will name you an ex-counsel who is slave to an old hag, a millionaire who is slave to a serving maid, 
I will show you youths of the noblest birth in serfdom to pantomime players. No servitude is more disgraceful than that which is self-imposed. You should therefore not be deterred by these finicky persons from showing yourself to your slaves as an affable person and not proudly superior to them. They ought to respect you rather than fear you. Some may maintain that I am now offering the liberty cap to slaves in general and toppling down lords from their high estate because I bid slaves respect their masters instead of fearing them. They say, This is what he plainly means. Slaves are to pay respect as if they were clients or early morning callers. Anyone who holds this opinion forgets that what is enough for a god cannot be too little for a master. Respect means love, and love and fear cannot be mingled. So I hold that you are entirely right in not wishing to be feared by your slaves and in lashing them merely with the tongue. Only dumb animals need the thong. That which annoys us does not necessarily injure us, but we are driven into wild rage by our luxurious lives, so that whatever does not answer our whims arouses our anger. We don the temper of kings, for they too, forgetful alike of their own strength and of other men's weakness, grow white-hot with rage, as if they had received an injury, when they are entirely protected from danger of such injury by their exalted station. They are not unaware that this is true, but by finding fault they seize upon opportunities to do harm. They insist that they have received injuries in order that they may inflict them. I do not wish to delay you longer, for you need no exhortation. This, among other things, is a mark of good character. It forms its own judgments and abides by them. But badness is fickle and frequently changing, not for the better, but for something different. Farewell.